Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 119. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and I'm recording this on June 21st, 2023, moments after the summer solstice in Austin, Texas. We are telling the history of the lands now encompassed by the United States from the beginning without presentism. It is December 1636 in Massachusetts. New college, soon to be renamed Harvard, has been established for two months. It's said that one of the reasons for its founding was to teach Harvard men conventional Puritan theology to serve as a sort of vaccine against heterodox ideas such as those taught by Roger Williams and Anne Hutchinson. As of this writing, Harvard has been established for 4,641 months, and some would say it still functions as a vaccine against heterodox ideas. As you know, if you listen to our series on the gruesome Pequot War, John Endicott has roiled up the Pequots with his foolish raid on the Connecticut coast, and Fort Saybrook at the mouth of the Connecticut River is effectively under siege. At the December General Court, the Massachusetts Bay Colony will organize three militia regiments to wage war against the Pequots. The United States National Guard recognizes this mustering as its founding moment, which is, for my taste, a little Anglo-centric insofar as in September 1565, Pedro Menendez de Avilas had organized militia in St. Augustine to attack the French outpost at Fort Caroline, today's Jacksonville, Florida. Maybe that wasn't such a great thing to memorialize and that it led to a horrific massacre, but then so did the Massachusetts militia at Mystic. At exactly the same time as it perceived a dangerous external threat, the Bay Colony was being torn apart internally, as recounted at the end of the last episode, which you really need to listen to before you listen to this one. The preachers John Cotton and John Wheelwright, and perhaps more importantly, the many and influential followers of Anne Hutchinson in Boston, had to various degrees accused the other ministers in the colony of teaching a covenant of works, an egregious charge in Puritan Massachusetts. Hutchinson's followers were not merely her women friends who could do little more politically than talk amongst themselves or presumably some of the time speak more plainly in private with their husbands. They included, in the words of Yves Laplante, such respected men of the colony as the town assessor, William Colburn, William Aspinwell, who was a notary, court recorder, and surveyor, William Coddington, the richest man in Boston, the prominent silk merchant John Coggeshall, the innkeeper William Balston, and William Dyer, the milliner. And of course, Sir Henry Vane, the governor of the colony, and her own husband William, who may have ranked just below Coddington in his personal wealth. John Winthrop and the other secular leaders of the colony had, to that point, failed to mediate a reconciliation of their theological position with a conventional, it must be said, more nuanced theology prevailing outside of Boston. Neither Hutchinson nor her opponents had shown any interest in compromise, which threatened the unity of the colony even more than Roger Williams had done. This was doubly true because Hutchinson's followers had opposed waging war on the Pequots. 
from our 21st century perspective, that put them on the proverbial right side of history, an expression you can imagine I deplore. But from the point of view of the leadership of the colony, and frankly, any wartime leadership almost anywhere in history, it made them dangerous subversives. Indeed, there was some suggestion that the anti-war opinions dominating in Boston hurt recruitment for the militia to such an extent that the militia was comprised of much rougher and more disreputable men than it otherwise would have been, which may in turn have contributed to the extraordinary violence they would visit upon the Pequots. Curiously, Captain John Underhill, one of the leaders of the Puritans in that war, would return to Boston after the slaughter at Mystic and join Hutchinson's followers in the fall of 1637. Even in December 1636, as Hutchinson's supporters were turning their back on the conventional Puritan preacher John Wilson, pastor of the Boston church, John Winthrop was still trying to work a compromise. He intervened to prevent the installation of John Wheelwright, Hutchinson's brother-in-law, as teacher in the Boston church, notwithstanding the wishes of a clear majority of the congregation. At about the same time, Winthrop prepared theological position papers designed to bring the two sides together. He sent them to Pastor Wilson, who forwarded them to Thomas Shepard in Cambridge. Shepard, you will recall, had led the charge against Cotton that fall. He was appalled by Winthrop's argument, which he critiqued respectfully but at length, saying that some passages seemed to me to be doubtful, and others to swerve from the truth. Neither side was showing any inclination to compromise. At the same December meeting of the general court that called up the militia against the Pequots, the magistrates declared a day of fasting on January 19, 1637. The purpose of the day was to promote colony-wide reflection on its external and internal crises. It would not go well. Now to Francis Bremer's account with a couple of clarifying interjections. Quote, On the morning of January 19, 1637, John and Margaret Winthrop joined the other members of the Boston Church in the meeting house for observation of the court-appointed fast day. John Cotton took the pulpit and preached on the need for peace and reconciliation. In other congregations, similar messages were delivered. When the Boston congregation reassembled for the afternoon sermon, Wheelwright rather than Wilson preached. Given that Winthrop at least suspected Wheelwright of familism, that would be another term for a version of antinomianism, and that the church had declined to call Wheelwright to a ministerial office, this was a curious decision for which there's no provable explanation. Perhaps with Cotton having urged reconciliation, Winthrop and the moderates anticipated that having Wheelwright deliver a similar message would isolate the enthusiasts, that's Bremer's term for Hutchinson's followers, from all clerical support. Or perhaps the enthusiasts, who represent a majority of the congregation, insisted upon it. Wheelwright opened by examining the reason for a fast, stating that there was cause to fast only if Christ was absent from the people. The cause of his absence in Massachusetts was the presence of anti-Christian spirits who advanced a covenant of works. 
If Christ was to be kept in Massachusetts, all who had the true spirit of godliness must prepare for spiritual combat, put on the armor of God, and show themselves valiant. They should have their swords ready. They must fight and fight with spiritual weapons. They must identify their anti-Christian enemies and kill them with the word of the Lord, but be willing to be killed like sheep themselves if that was God's will. In addressing the concern that his sermon was promoting division rather than reconciliation, he stated that I confess and acknowledge it will do so. But what then? Warning that the saints were to take care that they give not occasion to others to say we are libertines or antinomians. He branded the opposition the greatest enemies to the state that can be. Back to me. Cotton had been careful all along to speak ambiguously, and here began to shift in support of colonial unity. Wheelwright, on the one hand, and Shepard on the other, showed no such inclination. And Hutchinson's brother-in-law had thrown down the gauntlet, and with rhetoric that would have set 17th century Twitter on fire. He'd been so eliminationist in his words, as the kids today say, that even some of Hutchinson's followers began to have second thoughts. It's not hard for those of us following American politics today to believe, as Bremer suggests, that at least some of the enthusiasts in the Boston congregation had been as much enraged and polarized by Shepard's attacks as they had been by a commitment to Wheelwright and Hutchinson's theology. By the March 1637 meeting of the General Court, there was reason to believe that support for teaching a pure covenant of grace had peaked. At that meeting, the court called Wheelwright to account for his fast day sermon. Now back to Bremer, quote, Wheelwright was charged with having inveighed against all that walked in a covenant of works, as he described it, namely, such as maintain sanctification as evidence of justification. You remember all that stuff from last time, and called them antichrists, and stirred up the people against them with much bitterness and vehemency. Answering the court, Wheelwright acknowledged that that was what he had said, and he meant it. The other ministers were then called to testify and acknowledge that they indeed did preach that a godly life could be seen as proof of one's salvation. The court thereupon judged Wheelwright guilty of sedition for having sought to inflame the people against their spiritual leaders and also guilty of contempt of the court since they had appointed the fast as a means of reconciliation of the differences, etc., and he purposely set himself to kindle and increase them. Vane and a few others protested this action, and the Boston church submitted a petition challenging the judgment. Interjecting, being a woman and in any case nobody's fool, Anne Hutchinson had not signed the petition, even though many of her male followers had. Since the court's judicial proceedings were open to all freemen, the uproar in the Boston meeting house where the court met must have been considerable. Deciding to defer the sentencing of Wheelwright until its next session, the court set that meeting, as well as the election of magistrates, to be held in Newtown. In a related matter, the majority sent a message by fining the Boston merchant Stephen Greensmith 40 pounds for saying that all ministers but a few taught a covenant of works. 
In addition to the fine, he was ordered to acknowledge his error in each of the churches of the bay. Back to me. The next meeting of the general court was held on May 17th on the village common in Newtown, now Cambridge, well away from the pro-Hutchinson slash wheelwright majority in Boston. It was a fine spring day. It was also the annual meeting during which the governor and deputy governor for the next year would be elected. With the colony both mobilized for war and wrestling with the theological schism, turnout was high. More than a few of the freemen there to vote crowded into and around Thomas Chesholm's public house at the edge of the common, which had been licensed in September 1636, and which I believe, unless somebody knows differently, was the first true dive bar in English North America. If anybody knows differently, by all means, straighten me out. Sir Henry Vane arrived with his uniformed armed escort, a bit of pomp reflecting his own status that subsequent governors preserved. Before the proceedings, a Boston man in the Hutchinson faction demanded that the petition in support of Wheelwright be presented before the election. Winthrop, the lawyer, still technically out of power, but with more fundamental credibility than anybody else in the Bay, asserted that the general court could not be constituted to act on any such petition until after the election. Vane protested and the crowd split into raging factions shouting at each other. Naughty words were said and a few fisticuffs exchanged, but order was somehow restored and the election proceeded. Winthrop and Thomas Dudley were again elected as governor and deputy governor. The two frequently disagreed, but there was no space between them on the matter of the antinomians. Some historians attach great significance to the point that Vane was now entirely out of power and not even elected to the office of magistrate. The political tide certainly was turning against the Hutchinson faction, but Vane had already decided to return to England, which was probably well known, so maybe that was a factor in the voting. Regardless, the government of the colony was now unified in its opposition to antinomianism and acted accordingly. Winthrop again sought a measured response to resolve the doctrinal differences. Hoping to cut off the flow of new radicals from the mother country, the general court passed English North America's first immigration law, which forbid any person or town from providing room and board for any new arrival to the Bay Colony for more than three weeks, without securing the approval of at least two magistrates. The sentencing of Wheelwright was again deferred so that the clergy had another shot at persuading him of his error. Another day of fasting and repentance was declared, apparently in the hope that lots of hangry people would be inclined toward compromise. The summer of 1637 was momentous. Even recent and barely attentive listeners know of the Puritan victory in the Pequot War. Back in the colony, Winthrop worked hard to close the theological breach by compromise. Vane went back to England, and Winthrop was careful to treat him respectfully, notwithstanding their theological differences. Winthrop pumped out position papers with all his lawyer's craft, hoping to weasel his way to language that would close the gap between John Cotton, at least, and the rest of the clergy. He schmoozed Cotton, who inched his way toward the conventional consensus. The points of disagreement were slowly narrowed, first to five points and then three. 
By the end of August, the clergy of the Bay met to iron out their differences. The conventional Puritan clergy asserted itself, promulgating a list of 82 errors attributed to the Hutchinsonians. Cotton worked toward practical compromise, saying that, I esteemed some of the opinions to be blasphemous, some of them heretical, many of them erroneous, and almost all of them incommodiously expressed. Incommodiously expressed does a lot of work there, an indication of the extent to which Cotton wanted to compromise without throwing his own followers, including especially Anne Hutchinson, under the proverbial wagon. Wheelwright, however, didn't budge. Worse, neither did Hutchinson's followers, some of whom made it a practice to travel to other churches in the colony and heckle the preachers. Even if Cotton and the clergy were calming the waters, the lay citizenry of the bay were roiling them. Now let's go to Francis Bremer again. Quote, The intent of the general court that assembled at Newtown in November 1637 was to deal with those whose religious radicalism had led them to actions that threatened the unity and security of the colony. John Wheelwright, rejecting all opportunities to retract the incendiary remarks made in his fast day sermon, was banished and given two weeks to leave the colony. Next, the court called before it those who had petitioned them in favor of Wheelwright and attacked the actions of the court. William Aspinwell, a prominent Bostonian and a deputy to the court, was judged for having signed the petition to be a seditious libel and justifying the same, and for his insolent and turbulent carriage, was discharged and banished. William Coggeshall stood up and protested this action, and for disturbing the public peace, was disenfranchised and enjoined not to speak anything to disturb the public peace further under pain of banishment. While some wished to banish Coggeshall immediately, Winthrop evidently persuaded the court to adopt the more moderate sentence. Back to me. The general court disenfranchised Hutchinson's male supporters. Basically, the 50 and odd men who'd signed the petition in defense of Wheelwright and confiscated their arms. At the same time, Winthrop knew that even the prominent men who attended Anne Hutchinson's discussion group were not the real source of the colony's internal division. After dealing with the men, the general court called Anne Hutchinson. Edmund Morgan in The Puritan Dilemma sets it up. Quote, What followed was the least attractive episode in Winthrop's career. Anne Hutchinson was his intellectual superior in everything except political judgment, in everything except the sense of what was possible in this world. In nearly every exchange of words, she defeated him, and the other members of the general court with him. The record of her trial, if it is proper to dignify the procedure with that name, is one of the few documents in which her words have been recorded, and it reveals a proud, brilliant woman put down by men who had judged her in advance. The purpose of the trial was doubtless to make her conviction seem to follow due process of law, but it might have been better for the reputation of her judges if they'd simply banished her unheard. Back to me. We can surmise that Hutchinson was smart and charismatic because she'd built a huge following in Boston that was willing to risk the schism of the Bay Colony at the edge of a dangerous wilderness in the service of her theological opinions. 
That was no mean feat for a woman of that time and place. Because Hutchinson left no writings of her own, the only record we have of her words and her voice, as it were, came from the transcript of her civil trial and subsequent excommunication hearing. It is in these transcripts that Hutchinson's intellectual superiority and quick wit are in full display. The trial record is the basis of Hutchinson's modern reputation as an American proto-feminist, less because she asserts new rights for women, and more for the caustic condescension of the magistrates who were her prosecutors, judges, and jury. Anne Hutchinson, now 46, appeared before the court for her two-day trial. She was seemingly pregnant again, but for the first time in her life, pregnancy made her feel sick. She would have suspected that something was wrong, as it would turn out to be. Hutchinson stood before the 40 magistrates arrayed against her on that cold November morning, watching a servant fill their brass foot warmers with coals. Winthrop opened the trial. Not Eve LaPlante, author of American Jezebel, whose book on Anne Hutchinson is lavish in both detail and speculation. It's a great book to read if you want more about Hutchinson. But handle with care. Quote, Mistress Hutchinson, he began, looking around to ensure that he had the attention of all. That would be a little bit of speculation. You are called here as one of those that have troubled the peace of the commonwealth and the churches here. You are known to be a woman that hath had a great share in the prompting and divulging of those opinions that are the cause of this trouble, and to be nearly joined not only in affinity and affection with some of those the court has passed censure upon. And Hutchinson stood silently before the governor, listening closely, but mindful of God. She did not yet know the nature of the charge against her. Indeed, even Winthrop himself was not yet sure what charge to use against the first female defendant in the new world. He couldn't accuse her of contempt against the state or of sedition, because as a woman she had no public role. She could not be silenced or punished with disenfranchisement, because as a woman she had no voice or vote. Winthrop concluded his opening remarks with two threats— if you be in an erroneous way, we may reduce you. And if you be obstinate in your course, then the court may take such course that you may trouble us no further. And replied, I'm called here to answer before you, but I hear no things laid to my charge. These words, transcribed by two observers in the courtroom, are her first ever recorded words. They show her as she was, clever and undeterred. She was calling the governor's bluff, exploiting his failure to charge her with any crime. I have told you some already, Winthrop sputtered, and more I can tell you. Name one, sir, she replied. Anne, with no lawyer or advisor, would have to speak for herself throughout the trial. By colonial decree, in contrast to English common law, she had no right to counsel, and even her husband could not testify on her behalf. Ministers and deputies of the Massachusetts court were present as witnesses and to advise the prosecution, but the defendant was allowed no legal assistance or advice. Have I not named some already, the governor said to her. 
What have I said or done, she repeated. As they both knew, she'd done nothing criminal. As a woman, she had no publicly sanctioned role. Her actions were invisible. Back to me. The court was in something of a bind. Winthrop and no doubt most of the magistrates considered themselves to be principled men and did not want to expel Hutchinson out of sheer caprice. Nor did they want to be seen to act capriciously, insofar as that would undermine their authority in both Massachusetts and England at the worst possible moment. At the same time, they concluded it was essential to heal the division Hutchinson's teaching had fomented and restore theological conformity and political unity to the colony. They needed charges, but they were difficult to come by for the reasons LaPlante describes regarding Hutchinson's status as a woman, and because Hutchinson had played her hand very cleverly. Eventually, the court settled on three, that she had countenanced and encouraged the men who had signed the petition in defense of Wheelwright, that her home meetings were not tolerable or comely in the sight of God or appropriately led by a woman, and that she had slandered the ministers of the colony by accusing them of teaching a covenant of works. None of these charges were particularly heinous and certainly not criminal. Hutchinson would respond to them brilliantly. Edmund Morgan addressed the first charge in a paper published in the New England Quarterly in 1937, the case against Anne Hutchinson. In Morgan's description, the tissue-thin justification for the charge of countenancing and encouraging the wheelwright petitioners was grounded in the fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother. She had dishonored the governors, who were the fathers of the commonwealth. Hutchinson's response was epic. Listen closely. But put the case, sir, that I do fear the Lord and my parents. May I not entertain them that fear the Lord, because my parents will not give me leave. In Morgan's words, after attempting to find his way around this logical impasse, Governor Winthrop, good Puritan casuist though he was, was forced to take refuge in dogmatic assertion. Winthrop responded, We do not mean to discourse with those of your sex, but only this. You do adhere unto them, and do endeavor to set forward this faction, and so you do dishonor us. Everybody could see through this. The first charge was leaking worse than the Titanic. On the charge that Hutchinson's after-church home teachings were an offense to God, etc., Winthrop dropped the hammer, quoting from the transcript as supplied by LaPlante with a few annotating interjections from me. Your course is not to be suffered for. It is greatly prejudicial to the state. It is to seduce many honest persons that are called to these meetings, and your opinions, being known to be different from the word of God, may seduce many simple souls that resort unto you. And now these opinions have flown off from magistrates and ministers since they have come to you. And besides that, it will not well stand with the commonwealth that families should be neglected for so many neighbors and dames and so much time spent. In other words, the ladies need to be at home tending to their families. We see no rule of God for this. We see not that any should have authority to set up any other exercises, 
meaning the teaching of the word of Christ, besides what authority hath already set up. And so what hurt comes of this you will be guilty of, and we for suffering you. Back to me, Hutchinson stood apparently unruffled. Sir, I do not believe that to be so. Winthrop replied, Well, we see how it is. We must therefore put it away from you or restrain you from maintaining this course. We are your judges and not you ours, and we must compel you to it. Laplante, it should be said, emphasizes Winthrop's speech with italics that she's imagined to make him sound as much like a nickname for Richard, family podcast, etc., etc., as possible. She may be right in her interpretations of inflections and such, but the transcript, of course, does not reflect it. Read with a different inflection, Winthrop might have sounded more reasonable. It's pretty tough to know. Regardless, Hutchinson replied, If you have a rule for it from God's word, you may. If it please you by authority to put my teaching down, I will freely let you, for I am subject to your authority. I desire that you would then set me down a rule by which I may put them away that come unto me and so have peace in so doing. In other words, show me the law. Winthrop, who was no match for Hutchinson and his knowledge of scripture, deflected. Yes, you are a woman of most note and of best abilities, and if some others take upon them the like, it is by your teaching and example. But you show not in all this by what authority you take upon you to be such a public instructor. This was important. Private instruction was allowed within a family or in a small group. Winthrop was saying that Hutchinson's sessions had become so large that they were public. And for that, she needed explicit authority from God, authority that was unavailable to her because she was a woman and a layman. Suddenly, without warning, Hutchinson fainted to the floor. Her husband and brother rushed from the back of the hall and helped her to her feet. Winthrop gave her leave to sit down and seems to have offered her a continuance and agreed to continue with the trial and sat down on the bench brought forward. Thusly composed, Hutchinson quoted scripture back to Winthrop from Paul's letter to Titus, that elder women may instruct the young women. Winthrop shot back that Paul's instruction was that older women instruct the younger about their business and to love their husbands. The entire passage, like much scripture, can be read to support both positions. Hutchinson went on to cite a passage from Acts of the Apostles that seemed to authorize instruction from older women, in which Priscilla had taught Apollos in her home. Now to Laplante, quote, Winthrop mocked her. See how your argument stands? Priscilla with her husband took Apollos home to instruct him privately. Therefore, Mistress Hutchinson without her husband may teach 60 or 80? I call them not, she replied, but if they come to me, I may instruct them. Yet you show us not a rule. I have given you two places of scripture, she answered, but neither of them will suit your practice. Her calm dissolving into sarcasm, she said, must I show my name written therein? Back to me. Winthrop rolled out other bits of scripture that admonish women to be silent in church, wives to seek guidance from their husbands, and so forth. 
reflecting the virtually universal norm of the time, theological argument was the province of men. Not that women were given much opportunity to shape that universal norm. In fact, women's after-church meetings were fairly common practice. There was nothing inherently wrong with them. The threat in Hutchinson's meetings arose from their popularity. Small groups of women talking theology while they quilted and such was just fine. But groups of 80 or more, including leading men of Boston, were another thing entirely. The case did not fit the scripture, one way or the other. Simon Bradstreet, the first new voice in the trial, sharpened the issues. Quoting LaPlante again, I am not against all women's meetings, but do think them to be lawful, observed Simon Bradstreet, a 33-year-old assistant who also served as the colony's secretary. Bradstreet, who sat with the six other assistants on the first bench behind the governor's desk, had come to Massachusetts in 1630 as part of Winthrop's group. Before making the transatlantic trip, he'd married Anne Dudley, who would later gain renown as the Puritan poet Anne Bradstreet. His wife's strivings to excel in a profession reserved for men may have prompted in him a compassion for Anne Hutchinson. While Anne Bradstreet never commented on Anne Hutchinson in her published work, she no doubt was aware of the trial because her husband and father were members of the general court. At the time, Anne Bradstreet was a 25-year-old mother too busy with three small children to attend the celebrated event just a block from her house. Simon Bradstreet seemed to offer Anne Hutchinson her first line of support, yet he urged her to consider abandoning her course because it gives offense. While not unlawful in his view, her meetings were dividing the colony and thus should cease. He, like Winthrop, saw conciliation as the best path to stability. In response to Bradstreet's display of pragmatism, Hutchinson said, Sir, in regard of myself, I could stop my meetings. But for others, I do not yet see light, although I shall further consider of it. Back to me. Hutchinson, it seems to me, is being tactically disingenuous here. Offered a way out, she insisted that she had a duty to teach others who had not yet seen the light. In this respect, she was no Roger Williams, but as intransigent in her point of view as her opponents. Her problem was that she lived in a world where conformity was seen by everyone as essential to social stability. She didn't disagree. She wanted the conformity to be on her terms. So the court had no real argument on the first charge, that Hutchinson had dishonored the governors by promoting the petition in support of Wheelwright, because she'd not signed it and there was no proof that she had cajoled the more than 50 of the male signers into doing so. She had argued the court to withdraw on the matter of the meetings in her home. Now Thomas Dudley came hard on the third charge, that she had slandered the other ministers of the colony. Back to LaPlante, quote, About three years ago, we were all in peace, Dudley said, referring to the length of the Hutchinson's stay. Then Mistress Hutchinson, from that time she came, hath made a disturbance. She had vented diversion of her strange opinions and hath forestalled the minds of many by their resort to her meetings that now she hath a potent party in the country. Now he continued, if all these things have endangered us as from that foundation, 
And if she in particular hath disparaged all our ministers in the land, that they have preached a covenant of works, and only Mr. Cotton a covenant of grace, why this is not to be suffered. And therefore, being driven to the foundation of our troubles, that would be Anne's teachings, and it being found that Mistress Hutchinson is that hath depraved all the ministers, and hath been the cause of what has fallen out, why we must take away the foundation, and the building will fall. Back to me, Hutchinson stood her ground. I pray, sir, prove it. Prove it that I said they preached nothing but a covenant of works. This was sly, because nobody had claimed she had said that they taught nothing but a covenant of works. Dudley, nobody's fool, spotted her sleight of hand. Why, a Jesuit may preach truth sometimes. There followed a long debate, too much for this humble podcast, that again revealed Hutchinson to be a skilled courtroom adversary. The magistrates hurled scripture, and she did back. But fundamentally, she denied the charge that she had ever said that the other ministers in the colony were teaching the despised covenant of works. Without witnesses, the court was in a bind. Winthrop knew that the ministers who had claimed that she had said as much would have to testify. Nobody wanted to try to recount the meeting almost a year before that gave rise to the third charge of the indictment. Hugh Peter, minister of Salem, said, quote, Our brethren are very unwilling to answer unless the court command us to speak. Winthrop so commanded. The six ministers who had been at the December 1636 meeting all testified that she had spoken critically of them. LaPlante again, quote, Briefly, the Reverend Peter said, crossly, she told me there was a wide and a broad difference between our brother Cotton and ourselves. I considered to know the difference. She answered that he preaches the covenant of grace and you the covenant of works, and that you are not able ministers of the New Testament and know no more than the apostles did before the resurrection of Christ. I then put it to her, what do you conceive of such a brother who preaches the covenant of works? She answered, he had not the seal of the Spirit, meaning he was not saved. Hutchinson replied, If our pastor would show his writings about the December meeting, you should see what I said, and that many things are not so as is reported. Ouch. The Reverend John Wilson, senior pastor of the Boston Church, had taken notes of the December meeting. He demurred. Sister Hutchinson, Wilson said, for the writings you speak of, I have them not. And I must say I did not write down all that was said. Yet I say that what is written in the previous testimony I will avouch. Winthrop asked Hutchinson for her copy of Wilson's notes, which she had also left at home. Both sides, as it were, claimed that the missing notes would support them, and both sides had left them miles away in Boston. Winthrop and Dudley challenged Hutchinson to account for the testimony of the six ministers, to which she defiantly responded, Prove that I said so. But she gave an inch, opening the way to John Cotton's testimony. Cotton had been Hutchinson's North Star, and while he had been silent in court, he had defended her to a point in other contexts. 
Hutchinson said, they, meaning the six ministers, thought that I did conceive there was a difference between them and Mr. Cotton. She was careful not to call them liars, just confused. She admitted only that she said the other ministers did not preach a covenant of grace so clearly as Mr. Cotton did. With that, the court adjourned for the day. The magistrates had proved nothing and were, so far, on thin ice if they were to banish Hutchinson. It might well be seen as a grave injustice, both in the Bay and, as importantly, in England. Winthrop, frustrated from chewing tinfoil all day, said that the court only wished Hutchinson to acknowledge her error and suggested that she spend the evening considering it. And being Anne, tired as she might have been, she probably spent the evening by the fire studying the transcript of the day's proceedings. She had argued Winthrop and the others to a draw. She no doubt knew that her fate would hang on John Cotton's testimony, which would inevitably come the next day. She was confident he would support her, or at least not harm her case. The second day of trial would contain many surprises. Since this episode's getting a little long in the tooth, this is a good place to stop right now. Next time, we will resume with the exciting conclusion of the trial of Anne Hutchinson and all the stuff that followed, including her role in founding an American state and her shocking demise. And since I promised, I will give you my own hot take on LaFaire Hutchinson. Thank you again for listening to the History of the Americans podcast. I love getting emails from you guys. Please keep them coming. You can reach me with questions, corrections, eruptions of indignation, or pats on the back on the contact page for the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com, or by email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com. You can buy the books I mentioned through the links and episode notes on the website and follow me on Twitter to stay up to date and sample my musings on mostly, but not entirely, history-related topics. Until next time. <laughs>